The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry with Joe McGill. Good morning, good morning, how are you this morning? I'm Joe McGill and you're listening to the Saturday Supplement and I hope I find you well wherever you are listening to us around the world on Radio Kerry.ie or on the traditional Radio Kerry app. I say traditional, I don't know traditional is, but the wireless is traditional, 96 to 98 FM. I hope you're tuning in there too. It is absolutely bucketing down, raining cats and dogs. So what you should be doing now for the next two hours is putting on the kittle or put down the fire or put on the heat, whatever way you do it, and sit back and relax because we have some program lined up for you this morning. Raining cats and dogs. I was thinking about that on my way up. Where does that phrase come from? So I did a bit of research for you now this morning. And there's a few different theories. One which I heard was uh, in Tudor, England, that the cats and the dogs, they'd be on the roof. And if it was raining so bad, they'd fall through the roof with the weight of them. I don't know, I don't know how true that is. The other one is Norse mythology. The phrase might have originated uh, from superstition. In Norse mythology, cats were thought to have immense control over the elements and dogs were a signal of the wind. Odin, the principal god of Norse mythology, had a dog attendant who rep- Presented the strong blasts of wind during heavy rain. Cats, on the other hand, were thought of as witches gliding through the wind. And then Greek mythology, another theory there, uh, suggests the, the phrase raining cats and dogs is the alteration of the Greek phrase katadoska. This seems like a wordy content for alter, alter, alternation, since even modern Greeks use the phrase to express heavy downpours and katadupa also bears little resemblance to cats and dogs but then this is the one I kind of like as well from uh, it's an Italian phrase and this is that Nelson sailors traversing Italian uh, waters might have picked up the phrase tempo cattivo which loosely translates to bad weather there's certainly a cat in cattivo and bad weather and heavy rain are almost interchangeable so but then there's no mention of dogs but don't we often say tis cat out so maybe that's where it comes from. Now, sir, food for thought there. Maybe you have a theory on cats and dogs. Get in touch with me, 66 712 You can text the WhatsApp, 83 300 On the programme this morning, we'll be celebrating 80 years of Listowel Drama Group. We'll also have our monthly Speaking of Poetry with Bernadette Nirida. And this month, we have a good one for you, Sylvia Platt. That's who we'll be talking about for our Speaking of Poetry slot. Now, as Listowel Drama Group, a celebrating a significant milestone this year. It is 80 years since they first presented a three-act play, Troubled Bachelors, by A.J. Stanley, on the 12th of January 1944. The group have been presenting players since that time, and this year want to mark the 80th anniversary with a production of John B. Keane's play, Big Maggie and former some former members of the group have gone on to national fame in Radio Ern, including Eamon Kelly, his wife Maura Sullivan and Tim Danaher. The group also had a long association with the writers Brian McMahon and John B. Keane and the production of Big Maggie will run from the 2nd to the 6th of March in St. John's Listowel and the opening night is Saturday night and I'm delighted 
to bring us on this journey now for the next hour or so. We have Imelda Dowling-Garvey, who plays Maggie in Big Maggie and has been associated with the group for a long time. Also associated with the group for a long time is Kevin Barry, producer-director. We have John Kinsella, famous singer and set designer, and again, been involved with the group for a very long time. And we have Owen D. McMahon. He has been leading actor, director, writer, producer, treasurer, and so much um, more. You're all very welcome. How are you this morning? Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Good morning, listeners. Um, so, Owen, let's go back to the start. How did this all begin, the Listowel Drama Group? Well, my father was prompted Brian. and haunted by um, fellow townsman Michael Kennelly, who had seen a production by the Tralee Drama Group of Autumn Fire by T.C. Murray, and he came home and said, we should have a drama group in the store and in the immortal words of Eamon Kelly which they did so about 1943 now we celebrate 1944 as the birth of it because that was the first three act play the first full length but the year before it in 43 there was a production of a one act play written by a man called it was Sauce for the Goose and it was by Joe Cochran which happened to be a pen name which my father adopted because his my grandmother, his mother was Johanna Coughlin from Bale and uh, he, did, he wasn't sure of his feet in writing this drama so he probably adopted this pen name for fear it was a flop. Yeah. I remember years later, uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, but years later he wrote a play called The Golden Folk and at a festival it was panned by um, the critic who said it was a magnificent failure. <laughs> so, so maybe he was he was but in the, going back to 1944 they set up the group and the first play was Troubled Bachelors now the programme note on that is, is very important because it would be now a mission statement in today's words and it goes as follows Listowel is but a small country town with a population of between three and 4,000 people. In proportion to its size, it has contributed in no small fashion to the literary and dramatic progress of this country. It has produced two first-class dramatists in George Fitzmaurice and Seamus Wilmers, whose dramas have been produced in the Abbey Theatre and the Tyviark in Galway. For a considerable number of years, Listowel has chosen to ignore the national wave of enthusiasm for all things pertaining to the dramatic. Listowel Drama Group is not content to suffer the subordinate position of our town in this particular. It invites you and you and you to cooperate with it. It is determined to discover talent in this town, to make patent that which is latent, to offer our citizens something of which they may grow proud. The history of the Irish stage has repeatedly demonstrated that the small town has played no mean part in the records of contemporary drama. That's a piece of poetry in itself. Well, it's a, it's a clarion call and it's a rallying call. And uh, he mentions just two uh, playwrights there, George Fitzmaurice, Seamus Wilmot. That was 1944, of course. History then has said that we've had um, a number of uh, dramatists since my father, of course, John B. You had Pat Given and you had Paddy Fitzgibbon who wrote. So the, the torch was handed on at that stage. And... Um, it is, I even have the first programme, and would you believe I had the first balance sheet <laughs> in which they made the large profit of 16 shillings, five, 16 pounds, 5 shillings and 9 pence. They took in 43 pounds at the box office, and that was the, 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 the way forward. Everything so it was a success was, from the start, was it? It was, but there was a coincidence mm, what that, was that? that engaged it. The following year, 
Eamon Kelly, the Shanachie, arrived in town as a woodwork teacher. Now, he had written a couple of poems which had been published, I think, in The Bell. And my father, uh, sorry, my mother at the time had a bookshop to supplement supplement my father's teaching income and uh, he walked into the bookshop and uh, my father just engaged him Eamon Kelly he says I know that name you had a poem and they struck up a friendship and the following year Eamon became the producer and he drove the the, 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 the group then for the next seven years until he left in 52 so it was a coincidence that they matched up but Michael Kennelly's role cannot be underestimated either Michael had a travel agency in the store and it was he who goaded my father into it now there had been a dramatic society in the area 1900, about 1910 and 1912 in the store, but that had fallen off. Yeah. But when you talk about two two dramatists there, the aim of it was to do something of their own, about their own, and by their own. And that was the, the, that was really what they wanted, and that's how they. My father started writing plays then, and subsequently John B. started writing plays because he knew they had a forum which would be form, performed. They had a group who would perform this. And it's history, of course, that Saive, when John B. wrote it, was rejected by the Abbey. Mm. But it came back as a script to the Listowel Drama Group. They had a fresh look at it, and then they performed it and put it on in 1959, and the rest is history. Yeah. We can go into that later on. Yeah, and, and I can't wait to go into that history, because it's such a, it's such significant history in our country as well. And I, I love the way you say that it was made for the people, so it was a reflection of what was going on as well at the time and different things like that, which is brilliant. Um, I do want to talk to kind of uh, all of my guests uh, before we go into more of the history. So, uh, Imelda Dowling-Garvey, um, you're playing Maggie in the upcoming uh, performance of that but before we, we we talk about that tell us how you got involved in the in the whole thing uh, they were stuck <laughs> that's it now that was my calling card um, you know you're a brilliant actress when they're just stuck <laughs> and anybody will do um, and I and I believe I might be wrong that they had five or six asked before me correct. so I wasn't even on the top of the stock list oh there's even got to lie uh, there he said I correct I don't even think I was on the list at all I was on page two of the list um, yes yeah, so somebody just uh, uh, it was on said to me um, in um, early 2000 there, 2004, were stuck for somebody for uh, a play they were doing, it was called Lynn Me a Tenor and he said would you ever come on with us and I had already turned down another drama group so I was kind of betwixt and between because just timing, you know with yeah. small children didn't suit uh, but Owen is very persuasive and he has a great way about him so uh, I was only doing him a favour for a night or two um, and sure here I am uh, 20 years later still doing him favours <laughs> <laughs> And were you acting before that? Um, yes, my first um, foray onto stage would have been very, uh, when I was very small my father was Michael Dowling so we, my, uh, he was involved in Ren Boys and Listowel and, and all that sort of stuff so we were on stage all our lives but my first big production was I played Tevier and Fiddler on the Roof in the Presentation Convent and was Tony Behan there from Cahardown and Sister Consolata in Listowel um, two fabulous, fabulous um, people um, related to theatre and uh, that was my first big role so um yeah, I've been in, on stage all my life, really. Brilliant. And we will be hearing um, you perform uh, a little uh, later on. Um, Kevin Barry, uh, the director of up, Upcoming Maggie, how did you get involved? Were they hardly stuck as well for you, were they? Or how did you get involved? <coughs> they definitely weren't stuck at the time. Um, I happened to be playing the guitar and singing every Thursday night in Wolf's Horseshoe Bar in Listowel when I was about 21 years of age. And one night, just around Listowel races, um, Brendan Landy, a contemporary of mine and a lifelong member of the group, 
we struck up a conversation and he said, have you ever considered uh, acting? Have you ever considered the stage? And I said, I had thought about it, but I don't really have the confidence for it. And he said, look, we're having a meeting. Why don't you come down? So on I went to the meeting a couple of weeks later. It was around October 91. But the meeting turned out to be the AGM. And I left the AGM as secretary of the group, <laughs> a post I held for the next seven years, and the rest is history. Um, I've been involved in every production since, and it was probably uh, the most fortuitous meeting I ever had in a bar. <laughs> Brilliant story. Um, instant promotion. Instant promotion. John Kinsler, yourself, how did you get involved? I came to town in 1980. Yeah. And, uh, From where? From Wexford, yeah, yeah. I came to town. I worked with. I worked in Tarbert Power Station, and Benny Landy was a, who was a, a, a long-standing member of the group. Uh, encouraged me. Benny worked with me in Tarbert, and Benny encouraged me to join the group. So I helped out then, and then I got uh, to to know how to build sets, and I, that's my. Uh, that's what I like doing actually Just I, I acted in a few but there again they were stuck and I, I played a guard in one of them uh, But um, so that's how I like building sets and painting and stuff like that that's and would you sing a song during performances or anything like that I have been known to do that yeah, yeah you get kind of fitted me in just to keep me happy I suppose you know and I play the accordion and things like that yeah, so. um, the sets. I'd imagine there's a, a tremendous challenge there as well to kind of because you're you're throwing something new all the time. I'd imagine you have to be creative. Well, yeah. The first of all, you have to make sure that you've exits for people that you know that they come in there without mm. without tumbling over one another and so forth. And that's the the main the main. Uh, you have to get that right first, mm. and then you start adding little bits to it and little tricks to. To get the audience uh, excited, you know. <laughs> yeah, because and and it's so important, I think, the sets. And sometimes it's the, it's the one set on for the whole, you know, performance. So it has to be it has to be good, and it has to have different elements to it that it can facilitate everything. Well, my father said that if you go to a play, the first ten pages of it, you won't have big action, or you the, the, the plot won't develop for the first ten pages because the audience are taking in the mm. set. Yeah. and their eyes are wandering over and they're looking oh isn't that a lovely door isn't that a lovely dresser whatever it is so you'll never get someone killed in the first 10 pages of a play <laughs> um, but uh, John has been wonderful in our sets uh, I had the misfortune uh, to, to misfortune to, to produce a play in 1974 called Anyone Could Rob a Bank and the second year out in 1975 I produced the Shock Ron which had 16 changes of set during Whoa. that performance, uh, I can't say it was a, a rolling success, but we we devised many ways of changing the set. Actually, I, I had two scaffolding poles and I had revolving sets, which is which are on. So you trick around it, but John is wonderful, yeah, and wonderful. And coming up, he always comes up with a, a sly turn. I remember the master, the production of the master, and the final scene was when the master is uh, kind of dreaming about his retirement day and he falls asleep in the chair. John had the roll book on the stage, no one else, and the roll book page started turning by itself Whoa! and everybody came up after, how did you do that, how did you do <laughs> that but John kept it to see Br Brilliant, we are talking uh, about the Listowel Drama Group celebrating 80 years this year, we will have a few performances and we'll find out more about this wonderful rich history I tell you I'm in my element here this morning because this is magical what we're talking about if you want to get in touch with the programme 066 712 you can text the WhatsApp 083 300 300 the Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. 
You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yes, and I hope you're enjoying the programme so far. 0667123666 for your calls. 0833033300. We are celebrating eight years of Listowel Drama Group in studio. We're joined by Melda Dowling Garvey, Kevin Barry, John Kinsler, and Owen McMahon. Um, Owen, before the break, there we were talking about. Eamon Kelly. I grew up on Eamon Kelly stories, I have to say, on his tapes, his cassette tapes, and I had a book as well. I often tell this story. We were, I used to perform his stories, and uh, one of the books, I was in a guest house in Thailand, and I was recording it in a studio there. When I came back to the guest house, I left my book on the, the table. The book was gone. So there's some shanaki over in North Thailand in Chiang Mai now telling Eamon Kelly stories. But he was a, a, a significant influence on the Listowel drama group when he arrived as a woodwork teacher. Oh, undoubtedly, because he took up the reins in 1945, and he became a leading actor became producer, director, set designer, set construction because he was a woodwork teacher and he drove it. But you talk about, you grew up in Eamon Kelly. Well, I did because uh, my father's first full-length play was called The Bugle and the Blood and that was performed by the Stoll Drama Group the month before I was born in 1948 and Eamon Kelly was uh, produced it. And... Uh, Eamon was a frequent visitor to our house and one of my earliest memories is uh, the early 1950s on a night or two before Christmas being in bed and being called down by my father that uh, Eamon Kelly was below and he wanted to tell the story. Now he was only embarking on his change of career at that stage. He was practicing his story and I remember him sitting down and he flexing his fingers and he began in my father's time and he had us mesmerised. But the funny thing about Eamon was, Eamon was a consummate actor but he would never go on stage without his hat. Really? Never go on stage without his hat. And for a man with so much experience of playing to audiences all over the world and he was in America with um, Philadelphia Here I Come and he was travelled all over the world he was very nervous before he went on stage. But once he got the hat, and once he took the first step out on the stage, he changed character completely and relaxed in his inimitable style. He was also a connection. He was my godfather. He stood for me. So yeah. I had a connection with him all oh. through our life. And, of course, he married Maura O'Sullivan from Listowel, who he met through the drama group. And one of their marvellous productions was the play by the Western World, where Eamon played Christy Mahan and Maura played Piggy Mike and it was a riveting production I believe <coughs> but he was a frequent visitor to us afterwards in actual fact two of his children were named after us and one of them was Brian and the other was Owen Whoa. But and, and tell us because uh, I again know because of the cassettes I only could ever hear him I never saw him <laughs> so what was he like as a performer then was he demonstrative or oh, was he absolutely his voice or what was demonstrative yeah, wasn't absolutely it? demonstrative uh, I saw him in his one man show in Shimsa and he was describing how the, the pub was raided one night and how they got out the back window and uh, they um, skeeted down the corrugated iron roof and all he did was he turned the chair on its edge and he put the cap at the top of it and the cap slid down the chair and he cut it the other end to demonstrate people sliding down this, this corrugated iron roof oh. and I, I asked him one time Eamon I have a problem if I'm on stage I don't know whether I'm in the light what would I do he says if you're on stage look down your nose if you can see the top of your nose you're alright if you can't move <laughs> 
<laughs> but I have one apology to make, and Melda's going to correct me there. I left out two f- famous people who, who are uh, playwrights in the modern sense, Melda, there. Yes, we were just say, mentioning there uh, Tony Gearn, of course, from the Stole, and sure, the great Christian O'Reilly, who's, who's gone on to amazing things. Um, and these are the modern playwrights now. And I suppose going back to the, the um, aim of the drama group, you know, bringing forward that which is, you know, asleep in people. That's that's what the whole mission statement of the drama group was. You know, igniting that sense of creativity in people. And we see people like Christian O'Reilly now and at the forefront of drama in Ireland and, uh, you know, writing for film and all that sort of stuff. So it's just fabulous and that's that's what it's all about really, yeah. isn't yeah. And it? my father was, had a quotation he liked to hark back at. He says, I harboured the absurd notion of motivating the town of Listole, a small speck on the map, to become a centre of the imagination. Mm. Mm. And it certainly achieved that. Um, what's your favourite play on? I'm torn. Mm. My favourite one-act play is George Morris's The Magic Glasses. George Morris, a wonderful character. Uh, my favourite three-act play then would of course with my association with, with my father's semi-autobiographical play The Master but I am tremendously tremendously fond of Dancing at Lunasa in actual fact when I'm going on holidays every year the first thing I pack in the suitcase is the script is of me. Dancing <laughs> <laughs> I was in it I was in it it's me isn't it Owen and, you're Maggie. <laughs> and I was Maggie in that too so I go on holidays with himself and Judy every year <laughs> working out good for both of us <laughs> the magic glasses is a wonderful yeah you know. and are we going to hear a, 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 an excerpt of that yeah. now Kevin yeah. and myself will give it I just to give you a description uh, this is a one act play about a young man who refuses to work for his father and mother and spends his time up in the top loft looking at magic glasses. Now, we don't know whether glasses were drinking glasses, looking glasses, or binoculars, but he he got them at a fair, and it describes it here, and the, the quack doctor is Morgan Quill, who is sent by the father and mother, father and father mother to come and cure this fella and to get him out of the top loft. From whence, may I inquire, did you procure them magic glasses? From a brown woman, sir. From a brown woman, ha. Huh? "'Twas on a summer's day and we go on to the pattern of liar. Myself and them two brothers of mine that are now ignorant peelers. It's through a wood the brown woman came to me, and it wasn't a cackle or a noise at all she made, and she walking on the grass so green. She stood for a while where the bluebells grow. Mm, she stood for a while. Gone she was, and selling her wares at the pattern of liar. And didn't I give her all I had for a set of the magic glasses? Oh, it put her in great blood. And said she, "'Tis the likes of you I always want to meet that has the spunk in you, and I'm thinking you won't get tired of your purchase and fling it away from you in a week like many that haggles over the price of a glass or two, for tisn't one in a thousand buys of me the whole set. I see. Hold your tongue. The seven wonders of the world, the seas, mountains and cities, grand horses and carriages, and all wild animals are in them glasses. Gold and fight money you'd see in heaps, palaces with the finest furniture inside in them, the best of eating and drinking laid out on tables and the loveliest of Cheney, and all that and more is to be seen in the three brown glasses. Then there's the three red glasses and the three blue glasses that make up in the set. 
What's in the three red glasses? Oh, women. Full of the portiest women that was ever seen on the globe. It's myself that got fond of one of them, or maybe two. And in the glass I could see myself and the one I was doting on, and we together for the six days of the week. Times we'd be talking, and times there wouldn't be a word out of us at all, and out two moats in one kiss, and we in a sort of a day's. It's after saying I'd, um, that we'd be together for the six days of the week, but that wouldn't satisfy us, and we'd be together for the 365 days of the year, and wouldn't satisfy us. And for ages and ages, we'd be in tear and og, and it isn't satisfied, we'd be still. There's <laughs> a, a thing standing. now written about 1914 about yeah. a boy above in the top loft having dirty thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we are going to go to break, and after that, we're going to hear a song from uh, John Kinsella. But we'll go to a break and we'll gather ourselves here. We'll be back after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us, so six six seven one two three treble six. You can text WhatsApp oh eight three three hundred three three hundred. We have the Listall Drama Group with us. They're celebrating eighty years. Melded Old Garvey is here. Kevin Barry, Owen McMahon, and John Kinsler. We're going to hear a song from you now, John. What have you chosen to start off? I've with? chosen uh, Brian McMahon was a playwright, but he also sang, uh, wrote some lovely ballads. And I'm going to sing Brian's uh, My Silver River for you. Excellent. In your own time. My heart tonight is lonely for my sire land Though many miles of ocean lie between My heart tonight is home again in Ireland With many a smiling buckle and colleen Ah, would that in that green isle or the billows One hour of youth this lonely lad could steal I'd stand again and trance beside the willows Upon thy banks my silver river feel I've had success, or so the world reckons I've everything I've wanted at my hand Yet o'er the seas an Irish river beckons And how can I deny its fearful hand? For what are riches when the heart is aching? And what is wealth when all my scent is real? To stroll again and watch the red dawn breaking Along thy banks my silver river feel Tonight I see a cottage fire glowing The elves are dancing in the fairy ring While up the stream come silver salmon teeming Alive with all the urgencies of spring 
the good Lord thinks it's time for homing. Perhaps he'll let my weary spirit steal to linger far a moment in the gloaming. Above thy banks, my silver river feel. Well done, John. Brilliant. John, you have amazing clarity in your voice. I went on a journey there with you. Absolutely brilliant. Was um, on them songs, were they written for the plays? Were they written outside no. of it? No. <laughs> How they come was my father was very friendly with a printer in his stall called Robert Irvine Corporson. Okay. He was a off Scottish Presbyterian stock and he had a printer's shop at the top of William Street and my father after school would go in there. Now, Corporson would say, a printer lives in the future. What he meant by that, he was printing bills for a match a Sunday week or for a dance in a month's time or for yeah. a fair day. Yeah. He lived in the future. Yeah. He says, I'm printing bills in January for Easter and I'm printing Easter for the summer. And at the end, when he had the, 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 the cut off, he had uh, what, slices of paper left over and he'd say to my father, Sonny McMahon, write a ballad. Yeah. To fill in so the paper wouldn't go to waste. And that's how he got writing really? the ballads. But he had... Um, he had a feeling for ballads and in the late 40s then he presented a programme on Radio Weirden called The Ballad Maker Saturday Night for about four or five years where he collected the old ballads I remember him collecting The Shores of America I remember him collecting The Cliffs of Dunene and he would present it then and the singers uh, that would be Sean O'Shea Khan who was associated with GA afterwards and Joe Lynch Oh yeah, Denny, Denny was, from Glenrow, was the yeah. singers was the singers that he yeah. had on that A but, great singer he was he, yeah. he, But uh, sometimes then he might Put uh, the, the 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 theme of a song into he added into the, the honey spike to, to play about the tinkers. Yeah, um, I'm looking here at a message in. Hi Joe, please pass on our congratulations to Owen Melda, Kevin John, and everyone in the Stoll Drama Group on their 80th anniversary. To quote the group's motto, "The stage shall never die." From Cara Trent and everyone at Kerry Writers Museum, and even in the notes you gave me during the week, you you have that referenced a lot. The stage shall never die. It'll get a heart attack now and then. <laughs> and might, and might Would it never be fatal? There was a character in the town of the store and he was said that he wasn't seen for about three weeks and someone met him in the street and says, Tommy, how are you? I'm not bad for a fellow that got two knockouts and at least two of them are fatal. <laughs> <laughs> we, we mentioned David Kelly. We have to mention John B. Keane as well. And uh, I suppose one of your most famous productions in the history has to be Sive. You know, infamous and famous as well at the time. Well, it's history that... Um, one spark leads to another spark and John B. Uh, uh, says that he saw the 1958 production of Joseph Tumulty's All Souls Night performed by the Listowel Drama Group and going home that night he um, said I could write a play as good as that. Now, the same theme was the Scottish writer A.J. Cronin and he after reading a book put it down and in the presence of his wife he said I could write a better book than that. She got paper and pen set him down at the table to start now and when John B went home from the play he went upstairs and he started writing and by 3 o'clock in the morning he had the first scene of Sive. Oh. Now he says that he got the idea from meeting a man from West Limerick who called in to his pub asking where could he get a cheap ring and John B said that there was a jeweller down who might give him a discount in the store and he sent him along to the shop uh, where he bought the ring. The next time he met that man he was with a girl. She was 17, he was 65. Oh, and that's where he got the, the, the theme for the play. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it, 
it always um, um, resonates with me that one person doing something inspires another person to do something else. Yeah. And that's why John B. saw the play. Now, it was won the All-Ireland in 1959, swept all before the board, and then the Listowel Drama Group, on block, en masse, were invited to the Abbey for a week to perform in the Abbey. And it was the first time that uh, an amateur group performed in the Abbey. And um, it was... That was huge. Huge. Had to be. Huge. T- 25th of May. And I can just describe, give it a foreign feeling. This is a letter that was written by my brother Gary. I don't know whether it was sent because I saw the origin of it. And he just said after coming out, I have just seen Sive. I feel I must get this wonderful emotional experience out of my system. So I am compelled to take pen in hand to write down how I feel. Listole, you never look so lovely as on the stage of the Abbey Theatre tonight. Kerry, after your 17 All-Irelands, this was your greatest victory. You took the city by storm. You left the Jackeen speechless. You turned the capital into a day at Puck Fair. They exiled from your rocky kingdom how they rally round the flag. The tinkers, my God, how overpowering. The tears welled into my eyes, not from nostalgia, but from the sheer beauty of the thing. The whole cast, here us all. I had expected it to be good, but I was not prepared for anything so strong. It left me positively speechless. Indeed, it was a privilege to be present, and I am proud to be from Kerry and Alice Storman. Oh, to be able to create like that, you are the almighty best, Johnny. Fair play to you. I am prejudiced, I know, but it is the best play I've ever seen. Would that I could find words to do it justice. My poor words express so hopelessly, inadequately, the compatibility of a truly magnificent experience. I shudder to think how the Abbey would have staged it. They can be under no illusions as to their own limitations after your performance tonight. Thank you, John B. Thank you, Lister Old Grammar Group, for an evening I shall remember as long as I live. Wow. That was written yeah. on the night of the broken after coming out. I don't know whether they ever sent it. Yeah. But it encaptures the whole thing. Didn't it? Uh, it's ironic that he says he can't find the words. Yeah, I think he found the words. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> outstanding. Um, are we going to get another uh, performance? Yeah, I think, as I said, one of my favourite plays is, is Dancing at Lunasa. And um, Imelda was a superb Maggie in that. As you know, Lunasa is about five sisters in Donegal, written by Brian Friel. And uh, whereas uh, Bri- I read about an interview between Brian Friel and John B. And uh, they compared notes. And, and Brian Friel said to John B., why are you all ra- writing about the, the peasants in Kerry? And John B. says, because you're always writing about the pe- peasants in Donegal. <laughs> but he meant it in a, in, in a yeah, charitable yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And Maggie has a beautiful soliloquy in this. Okay. When I was 16, I remember slipping out one Sunday night. It was around this time of the year, the beginning of August, and off with me down to meet Bernie to the gates of the workhouse, and the pair of us, and we off to dance in our straw. I was being courted by a fella called Tim Carlin at the time, but ah, it was really Brian McGuinness that I was keen on. Do you remember Brian? He'd the white hands and the longest eyelashes that you've ever seen. Ah, sure, of course, he was crazy about Bernie. Anyway, the boys threw us up on the bar of their bikes and off with us, the four of us, tarred straw. Well, that was 15 miles each way. Jeez, if Daddy'd only known, may he rest in peace. And at the end of the night, there was a competition for the best military two-step and it was down to the three couples. You had the local pair from Art Straw and you had wee Timmy and myself because sure Timmy, he was only up to here and me. And you had Brian and Bernie. Oh, oh, they were just so beautiful together. So stylish, you couldn't take your eyes off them. 
Oh, people just stop dancing just to look at them. And when the judges announced the winners, they were probably blind drunk because, well, naturally the local couple came first and Timmy and myself, we came second. And Brian and Bernie, they came third. Bernie was stunned. She couldn't believe it. She couldn't talk. She wouldn't talk to any of us for the rest of the night. She she wouldn't even cycle home with us. Ah, she was right too. They should have won. They were just so beautiful together. That was the last time that I saw Brian McGuinness. Ah, you remember Brian. The next thing I heard, he'd left for Australia. Yeah, she was right to be angry, Bernie, she was. I know, it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair at all. I mean, they must have been blind drunk, those judges, whoever the hell they were. (laughs) Outstanding. Outstanding, Imelda. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, We are going to go to a break and we're going to have a lot more with Listall Drama Group after this. More wonderful performances and we'll we'll get another song or two out of John Kinsella too, hopefully. So we'll go to break with more after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. 083-300-3300 for your texts and whatsapps. You can call 066-712-3666. Hi Joe, best wishes to all in the Stoll Drama Group on their 80th anniversary. I'm enjoying the show. That comes in from Charles. Thanks for that, Charles. Um, Well done to Owen, John and the Stoll Drama Group this morning on a wonderful programme. Best wishes from Tom and Kathleen Hurley. And uh, in studio we have Imelda Dowling-Garvey, Kevin Barry, Owen McMahon and John Kinsella. And John, you're going to do another song for us. This is one of your own is it? This is one of my own Joe it's called the uh, Natterjack Toad. Very good in your own time so. Yeah. <clears throat> now you've all heard of Fungi and Fair Dingle Town Alas he's gone from us no sight nor no sound but your all's not yet lost off your chest take a load why not visit the home of the Natterjack Toad? For they come in their thousands each year to see me And it's easy to get here by land or by sea Just turn right at the grotto on the Connor Pass Road Now let me tell you my story, I'm a Natterjack Toad I was born down in Fota, in Cork, by the Lee. Ah, but how I got there is still a mystery to me. For I knew I belonged in that place by the sea. How I pined for the sand dunes of Castle Gregory. And they saw how I longed for my ancestral home Back where there were sand hills and freedom to roam In my dreams I could hear my poor ma calling me As she searched between the sand dunes of Castle Gregory So they loaded a van with my siblings and me Through McCroom and Killarney, then on to Tralee We were all so excited, sure we thought we'd explode 
Heading west to the home of the Natterjack Toll. Now a large crowd had gathered our freedom to see. RTE sent a camera and a man called George Lee. So I pumped up me chest and said, this life's for me. Sure, I'm famous at last, I'm a toad on TV. Now I'm strikingly handsome, or so I've been told. And they say that my body is a speckly gold. Yellow stripe down my back, well, that's what they tell me. As I stride round the sand dunes of Castle Gregory. Now by day I'm asleep, tucked away underground. After supper at night, there's romance to be found. And some say my love call can be heard in trally. Courting girl toads in the sand dunes of Castle Gregory. But I've heard I'm endangered, so it's all up to you To protect where I live, or I'll end up in a zoo So if you go out walking, please look out for me I'm a natterjack toad down in Castle Gregory so now that's my story, and I hope you'll agree that there's room on this planet for you and for me. And if you have the transport, whatever the mode, why not visit the home of the Natterjack Toad? Oh, what a song. Jeez, we've, we've nearly too much talent in this room, I tell you. John, brilliant uh, songwriting as well. Um, we nearly have to go to break for the news, but we mentioned judges on, and judges can be complimentary in adjudicators, but not always complimentary. No, well, people. one of the first early adjudications a drama group had was in the late 40s, and the adjudicator stood out and said, I have watched the performance of the Listole Dramatic Group tonight, and I would urge the ladies and gentlemen of the group that they would be better off employed if to while away the long winter evenings they took up something more productive and I would suggest they took up knitting. <laughs> now, if that had been taken to heart, you wouldn't have had the bugle in the blood, you wouldn't have had Sive, you wouldn't have Big Maggie, and it would have been killed uh, in its infancy. And my, my father always, and he was an adjudicator, he was the first adjudicator of the Drama Festival in Charleville in 1953, and he adjudicated several festivals afterwards. But he would always say of the critic, be careful be very careful that in criticising you'd like the man uh, bird watcher he says you don't slit the skylark's throat to see what makes it sing brilliant and we leave that settle in with you there now because we're going to go to a break then we've the news and we'll be joined again by the list of old drama group we also have Bernadette Nureda coming up with Speaking of Poetry and we're going to be focusing on Sylvia Platt we'll take a break we'll be back after the 10 news the Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. 
That's what you're listening to, and I hope you're enjoying the program so far. And get in touch with us this morning, 0667123366. You can text WhatsApp, 0833300300. We're talking about the Listol Drama Group celebrating 80 years, and they will be celebrating this fact by having a production of Big Maggie, which will run from the 2nd to the 6th of March in St. John's Listol, and that is starting off on the Saturday night in studio. I'm joined by Emel. The Dowling Garvey, who plays Maggie in Big Maggie and has been involved in the group in many years. So, likewise, has Kevin Barry, producer, director, John Kinsler, set designer, and wonderful singer and songwriter. You've heard him sing in the first hour. And Owen McMahon, the leading actor, director, writer, producer, mm. treasure, treasure, so much more. A jack of all trades. And uh, nice text coming in here. Good morning, Joe. Brilliant show this morning. What a talented group. And we love John singing. And that comes in from Peg Kelly and John Sexton. Temple uh, Glanton um, we were speaking before the break about all the different like we can't get to all the history because there's so much of it and it's so well documented by Owen but I'd imagine there was a few you mentioned a few hairy moments but a few funny moments I'd, I'd imagine as well being involved in drama yeah there's a number of one of them I remember the 40th anniversary production was The Hostage which we performed in the ballroom of Listowel Arms Hotel now The Hostage is um, set in a boarding house in Dublin and I was one of the lodgers in it, I was the informer actually but uh, there's, there was a sign on the stage a WC to indicate where the toilet for the boarding house was and I was off stage about to come in when a member of the audience got shot taken, walked up the aisle onto the stage, crossed in front of the actors and went in and as I came out to pull the door open he pushed it in on top of me <laughs> and he said I, and I like, could stick my head out and said when you got to go, you got to go <laughs> it made the Sunday Times actually that incident but another, another incident I'm Remember, not a so funny incident was in 1949 the Abbey produced the Bugle and the Blood the year after the Stoll Drama and the cast of that is is um, the list of famous actors you had Eileen Crow you had Harry Brogan you had Brian O'Higgins Breedney Lynching all tremendous professional actors with the Abbey but one of them played an Indian peddler which was um, from India not uh, an American Indian he was a, a door-to-door salesman of Jumper and his name on the programme was Sean McSorin. Now it was the first um, um, part he got and he, Ernest Blythe was the managing director and when the run was over and he was out of work for about three months he went up to see Ernest Blythe again and he said to Mr Blythe any chance of a part in a play and Blythe looked at him over his glasses. Now Ernest Blythe was the first minister for finance in the free state government but now he was the managing director of the Abbey he was a, a money man not an artistic man and Bly said to Mr. McSorden did you take part in the play before I did he said I took part in Brian McMahon's The Bugle in the Blood I was robbed the Indian peddler and Bly looked down his glass and said in an order like, I'll tell you Mr. McSorden the next time we have a part for an Indian peddler we'll send for you <laughs> now that Sean McSorden was no, none other than Jackie McGordon who afterwards became the greatest interpreter of Samuel Beckett's works that ever was and again there's a critic if he took that to heart he would have gone off and he would never have been heard of again so, but my father said he wasn't long at it he said if there was the politics of art there was also the art of politics ah. and he said he did not like the professional stage he loved the amateur 
group because their heart was in it, the community was in it. It was a community effort, yeah. and he always loved loved that, you know. Yeah. Um. They, uh, they, they, after Sive and things like that, I suppose there was kind of a, 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 you know, some people wanted to pursue it in a more professional way, I'd imagine, yes. and then others wanted to stay amateur. Well, so that, that has that pull and push has always been there, I imagine. Well, it was, it always, yeah. and and but my father always uh, remained true to the amateur ethos and the situation, and did it did it for the love of it and things like that, you know, and other yeah. people. But but. Uh, Look, Marie Coffey, um, Marie Keane Stack, who was um, uh, an actor in the 50, she was asked by Michal McLeamor to go up to the gate to join it. Nora Helen was asked to join the Abbey. Yeah. She had a young family at the time. Yeah. She, 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 but they, you know, I think your heart is in, in, in the production. If we did it for money, it would, it would tarnish yeah, it. Yeah, it would, yeah, yeah. Um, there has been many successes over the years, and we mentioned the early successes like the SO Awards and everything else, but in more recent times, Imelda, um, you've had huge success at, at different drama festivals. Just giving us a, an example, Seth. Yes, uh, I love that comment, if we did it for money. That's now the treasurer that's talking. <laughs> so that means there's no money, and it's a fantastic organisation, the drama group, because in my time, within 10 years, I became chairperson of it. So you can rise from the low to the low to the highest to the high but there is no money but in very quick time like Kevin you can go in and come out um, go in a nobody Kevin and come out as somebody um, yeah in 2015 we thought do you know what the Soul Drama Group hadn't been on the circuit the drama circuit for a long time and um, a play I always loved was Noel Card's Blight Spirit and we had done it and we were practising it and I just thought this is a fabulous play and our production was just outstanding mainly down to amazing actors but also this phenomenal set that John Kinsler built which um, was a, a poltergeist at work moving stuff around the set pictures flying books flying into the air like John did uh, like everything bar pyrotechnics and that's because health and safety wouldn't let us have that although we did have smoke uh, and Brendan Landy was responsible for the smoke um, but it was amazing so we said that we cannot let this one go so we took it on the circuit and we did four of the competitions. We won 13 awards Whoa. in four of the competitions. We won four Best Actresses. We won Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. We won Best Costumes in numerous um, places. We won Best Production, Funniest Production. And 13 um, fabulous awards. We rented a window in Listowel and we put them all on display and it was absolutely fabulous. And we actually had a great bit of crack. And uh, they said it couldn't be done but we have some great memories of um, our backstage crew sliding up and down on mattresses um, on, in, over in Charleville Hall having the crack and uh, people like Tina Kinsler people like um, you know Anne Halpin, Eileen Neville Catherine O'Carroll, like these are massively important people, they're backstage and we say, you know, nobody ever dies in the first 10 minutes of a play but there's a lot of attempted murder going on backstage <laughs> and there's a lot of people that are looking to come out with their lives and by the end of the night then we're all friends again and we've forgotten about it so Blight Spirit was a fantastic production, it really really was and we just loved it and we did that then and we moved on again so we're always trying to reinvent ourselves There was a reason that we won all the awards. I wasn't in that production. <laughs> <laughs> well, I played Madame Marchese in that and uh, you were in it because you co-directed it with me. So, he's, he's, a, he, he's a great man. Uh, uh, Owen, I have to say it for Owen. Owen is a natural director, a natural producer and a natural actor. He is fantastic. So, at this stage, no, it reminds me of when I was playing football and I was 
pretty useless playing football. I just about made number 15. And when I'd come in and sit down in the dressing room, a fellow would sit alongside me and he'd say to me, you had a great game. How did I play? (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, Kevin, we better defuse the situation. Um, You have an upcoming production uh, from the 2nd to the 6th of March in St. John's Listowel of um, Big Maggie. Um, So tell us about this. Are you looking forward to it? First of all, I'd imagine you are. Oh, of course. No pressure, the atheist. No pressure whatsoever. Of course we're looking forward to it because it's easy to do things when you have such a fantastic team, you know. Every single person in the drama group, many of them are very long-time members. We have some medium-term and some new members, and they all make their own contribution. Uh, No, not least of all, uh, uh, Kay Landy, who's, you know, been in the group since forever. Our president, yeah. Forever, our president, nearing her 90th year now. Whoa and uh, still guiding us in the background. So I'd just like to start, you know, by saying thank you very much to the Keane family, a huge thanks to the Keane family for giving us the rights and the permission to stage Big Maggie. Um, All John B. Keane plays are keenly observed, no matter where they're staged in the country, because he has such, um, you know, a wide, broad following. He addressed um, the social issues of his time in a way that was... I suppose frowned upon by the um, those who, who who really controlled the narrative, the social narrative, the religious Catholic narrative of the country at the time, and a lot of it is still very relevant today. So what Big Maggie does, as as he does in some of his other plays, he he questions um, the social construct of the time, and that was a very difficult thing to do back then in the early sixties and at the time when he was writing. It's a lot easier now. There are a lot more outlets and avenues and people are a lot more open in their opinions and a lot more well able to express their opinions. But back when John B. was writing, this people weren't. And this play was denounced. It was denounced from the altar and it was denounced by conservative society. And uh, it was an incredibly brave thing for him to address family in the way that he did. And he addressed it... um, through the character of Maggie Palpin, who rates along with some of the best female characters in Irish literature of the 20th century, in my humble opinion. Mm. And uh, brilliantly played, of course, by Imelda. And um, it's her abusive relationship, a marriage she couldn't, of course, leave at the time. And, of course, that's relevant in a lot of society today. Um, Not just Irish society, um, where it has been addressed but if you look across the world at various different um, cultures and religions that's still a huge taboo subject and um, so it begins with that and it goes on then to the conundrum of her husband dies at a young age in his 50s and she's left with this farm this business financial worries and four children to look after and of course she rails against that social convention and how she deals with the um, very difficult, you know, process of trying to... What road is she going to set those children on? They're all adults. Is she going to make them fight for it, work for it? Is she going to do the traditional thing, as is expected, and divide it up amongst them? And I suppose in considering this, we have to take into account that the Succession Act only came into law in 1965 in Ireland and this play is set in 1963-64 mm. prior to the Succession Act and at that time um, 
there was there were no rights of succession for the woman of the house. So if the husband died and everything had been left to the eldest child or split among the children, she was high and dry. And I know that there are many people out there of a certain age who will know people who are left in that situation where uh, somebody might have moved in and married the eldest son and there might have been a spinster sister or maybe the mother and they were really left in a very compromised position. So John B. addresses all that in this play through Maggie's character, through how she deals with her children and through how she interprets these social conventions. Excellent. Well described. The context is so important and mm. the bravery is exceptional. We're going to hear an excerpt uh, from it now, aren't we? Yes, yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah. The excerpt is Borden, who is the, 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 the bachelor in the play and Maggie, Big Maggie, and uh, it starts, uh, Borden enters the shop. Well, Burn. Good evening, Margaret. Oh, good evening to you too. Was it you that I saw walking up and down past the door earlier? Well, could be. What's the matter with you now? Mm, you won't put a tooth in it. I came to put my card on the table. Oh, no, you'll have to postpone the game, Burn, because I'm otherwise engaged as of now. I won't keep you two minutes. Two minutes. Right, fire away. And now that I have my chance, <clears throat> I don't know where to begin. Well, for the beginning now, I might tell you that you're doing an awful lot of arsing around here lately. I don't deny it. I'm around here more than I should. I noticed you for the past few weeks. Do you know, but you're like a gander that had badly want to get a goose. I suppose that's one way of putting it. Only the other night I was saying to myself, Burn is looking hot and bothered. Says I... Burn is behaving more like a jackdaw than a monumental sculptor. Ah, you've had your say, no. It's my turn. I, I have £4,000 in the bank. I'm not surprised with the prices that you charge in for headstones. Uh, I am a man of sober habits, although I take a drink if the occasion calls for it. And I have no objection to a woman taking a drink either. I'm a steady worker, and there's wide demand for my work. I'm a good Catholic. I does the nine Fridays regular, and I never miss matches in my life. And there's no year I don't earn more than would keep a family in comfort. And I'm told by folk that you'd know that I'm the best monumental sculptor around these parts. Now you're a monumental idiot, if you ask me. Well, will you or won't you? Will I or won't I what? Marry me. Marry you? Yes. Were you ever at the zoo, Burn? The zoo? I was. Uh, the year of the Eucharistic Congress, uh, when it was in Dublin, uh, 1932 it was. Ah, I was a fine young man then. Well, what has the zoo got to do with it? Well, Burn, if you were at the zoo, you'll know what a baboon is. I dare say I do. Good for you, Burn, because I would sooner be buckled to a baboon than to be buckled to you. Ah, you're an insulting woman. Oh, a baboon would suit you all right, Maggie. The bother is that no self-respecting mother of a monkey would consent to a son of hers marrying you. Oh, you gave me my answer, by. I'll hand it to you, Burn. Die, Maggie, die, and I'll give you a Celtic cross for nothing. <laughs> Good night to you. <laughs> <laughs> On Valentine's weekend, what a romantic proposal that was. <laughs> well done. Uh, absolutely excellent there, brilliantly uh, told. Um, lots of messages coming in. Hi, Joe, great show. Congratulations to the List Old Drama Group on 80 Years on stage. Looking forward to Big Maggie from the Knock Nagashal Spike players. Um, how do new members get involved? I know someone who'd fit right in. That comes in from May in uh, Listol. Um, Owen? 
I just uh, approached me in the street. My father used to say, oh, they got actors and actors they would watch people going up and down to Mass. And they'd say, oh, here's a nice walk. And they'd approach them, just approach me or leave her name and say, John's or anyone, Kevin or Amelda or anyone, we're delighted. This is, our group is a family group. Yeah. And once you come into it, you're in it forever. Uh, we are indebted to the Landy family. We've mentioned Kay already. Her late uh, husband, Ben, was our lighting director for many years. Uh, Frank McInerney, who's in this present production. Frank celebrated his eighth. 81 birthday this week and Frank came from England to work in Tarbert and worked with John and married a Tralee girl, Helen and uh, the Carney family the man who influenced me most was Bill Carney Bill Carney was uh, in the first production I saw The Magic Glasses in 1954 I think it was 5-6 years of age and himself and John Flaherty just riveted me they were both in Sive afterwards Bill Carney knew everything about the stage I didn't learn that craft from my father um, because uh, I heard the plays before they were on stage because my father used write in the writing room over our kitchen so while we were trying to listen to Radio Luxembourg he was pounding on the ceiling keep quiet down there because he was crafting Dickie yeah. Bird or Rab in his plays so I learned everything from Bill Carney the Whelan family grew, uh, lovely man Michael Whelan uh, who taught me everything I knew I, I, I don't know about set I remember spending three days painting a set and he took one, one look at it and he said Owen it reminds me nothing of it only the dirty pro, uh, protest in H Block oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> I said that's the bad news I can fix it in five minutes which he did yeah but uh, there there is, has been a, a tremendous family input oh, like I'm, you say oh, down through the years yeah, yeah. we're yeah. all a family then. yeah very good um, we are going to go to a break and uh, the Listole Drama Group will stay with me <coughs> and we'll be back after this and we might get another song with a John who knows The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media Ireland's best broadband visit virginmedia.ie it's playtime the Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. And next Saturday, Frank Lewis will be with you and uh, his programme is The Fexco Story. 34 billion euro in transactions in 29 countries with 2,500 employees, a thousand of them in Clorgan on Radio Kerry on February 24th. The story of Fexco, Frank Lewis, guided by Chairman Dennis McCarthy on Radio Kerry Saturday morning from 9 to 11. We're here with the list, Stoll Drama Group, and we were mentioning Family Zone and you wanted to mention the Carols. Uh, well, see, when uh, when you start mentioning families, you're bound to leave out some. Yes, very dangerous very situation dangerous. to name but, people, yeah. But the man who was there from the start was Brendan Carroll and Brendan was in the first production Trouble Bachelors his family he was um, married to Betty Keenstack her sister was Marie Keenstack and Catherine Carroll is our makeup artist she makes me 20 years younger uh, 30 years younger sometimes and they have been with us for, for ages Jim and Anne Halpin Oh, Constance in our drama group Anne has been our secretary for years and Jim has been a great character actor with us the Donovan family Kevin O'Donovan was in the first side. Um, all those people, we are indebted to them. And, you know, it's... I'm just reminded of one quotation there of my father, and this is a clarion call. For the last time, I'll endeavour to instruct the youth, and then I'll raise my voice no more. I consider the duty of at least one old man in every generation to pass on the ferocity he has inherited. I have striven to convey before now that the young life I lived was so thronged with small beauties that you wouldn't think twas sons and daughters of the flesh we were, but children of the rainbow, always dwelling in the morning of the world. And if only the all-seeing God had seen fit to send us a man with the gift of ink 
then maybe the story of all small wonders would go shouting through the borders of the nations. Excellent. We're running completely out of time and uh, there's loads of messages coming in. Congratulations to this old drama group and best wishes from Angeline O'Donnell and the Abbey side players in Abbey Field. Congratulations to this old players and all McMahon, Philip and Mary Inright, the rambling in in Abbey Field. Um, and uh, we are high Joe, very entertaining this morning. Um, that's all we need. We need this at time besides all the bad news. They're an inspiration to us all and there's a drama group in every town so uplifting any chance they could spread their wings and bring their shows around the county or give tips on how to start and set up a group and that comes in from a car uh, caller I'd imagine one just do it would be the the, 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 the advice there yes Good. indeed and I mean, Kelly you say he started his life in the West End the West End of car <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> very well said um, Kevin very quickly a big Maggie it's on from the uh, 4th to, uh, sorry 2nd okay. to the 6th in St. John's the Stole how do people get tickets? People get tickets by ringing St. John's at 068 Booking is essential and come and see a great cast and a wonderful play and John B. Keane's interpretation. Very good. And how do you contact the, carrier, the Listowel Drama Group you if you want to listen? contact Listowel Drama Group on our Facebook page and we would be very glad to hear from you and very welcoming to uh, anybody who really is interested in taking to the stage. Very good. We wanted to talk about so much more. I know, Owen, you were talking about the master, your um, play, and Elaine Kinsella got her start there. John's daughter, famous radio carrier Elaine Kinsella. Um, you see her on your TV screens now and everything, so it does a lot for uh, the confidence and everything else that I mentioned. Confidence. Yeah. To any 100 young person on stage. And they say you should never go on the stage with a child or an animal. Well, I had 24, five children in the production of The Master. Whoa. Um, that's where we'll have to leave it, lads. We could be here all day with you. I've absolutely loved my time talking to you. List all drama group. Congratulations on 80 years. And thanks a million for bringing your story to life as well. And uh, to all those, I suppose, that have gone as well, we'll remember those as well that would have been involved over um, those y- years. Um, we're going to finish out with a song. And John Kinsler, what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing John B. Cain's Sweetly Stole. In your own time, John. Oh, sweetly stole, I've loved you all my days. Your towering spires and shining streets and squares. Where sings the feel its everlasting lays And whispers to you in its evening prayers Of all fair towns, few have so sweet a soul Our gentle folk, compassionate and true Where'er I go, I love you sweetly stole and off my distant cap each day to you Down by the field the willows dip their wands From magic bowers where soft the night wind sighs How oft I've robed along your moonlit lands Where late love blooms and first love never dies Of all fair towns, few have so sweet a soul Our gentle folk, compassionate and true Where'er I go, I love you, sweetly stole And off my distant cap each day to you
So now, dear streets, I bid farewell to you. As fate ordains for me a far off road. Dear friends and neighbors, here's my fond adieu. Until we meet once more in sweet Listowel. Of all fair towns, one has so sweet a soul. Our gentle folk, compassionate and true. Where'er I go, I love you, sweet Listowel. And off my distant cap each day to you. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now it is the third Saturday of the month, so it's time for our Speaking of Poetry slot with Bernadette Neareda. Bernadette, how are you this morning? I'm good, Joe. Thank you. I'm good. And sure, look, um, maybe if you gave me the time, I could think of loads of things to complain about, but who wants to hear complaints? <laughs> we should, <laughs> so have, we should have a separate slot, a complaining slot a compla- of a Saturday oh God, morning. Joe, you, you'd be inundated, I'd say. <laughs> you'd be on overload straight away. <laughs> oh, if you open up a slot like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all have something to complain about, but the thing is, I suppose we can't be all the time complaining. No, so. I, wonder, I wonder what you'd call it. We must, we must think about that, though. What's uh, it in the Irish, complaining? Edgar Ron. It on, is it? Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm learning Irish at the moment, so that's a new word for me. Um, to Joe. Yeah. Come here. We were on about dog school there on Kerry Today last week, and you you were tuning in. You didn't come up with a poem yet for a dog yet, going to school, a mother's school. That's not saying there isn't one in the making, so I won't say. <laughs> I, you left an image in my head. Yeah, for, it, it, sometimes for, it's the only way to get rid of an image. Yeah, um, and for I those for like, for those I suppose that don't know who we're talking about, uh, there was <laughs> we were talking, we were debating on Kerry today about maybe dogs having to go to dog school and their owners as well, and as uh, a yeah. permit is the way it is in Switzerland. So that's why Bernadette was texting me about the dog going yeah. to school. It's, it's just you know it's amazing, and sometimes you've said where the poems come from, but that image stuck in my head, and I could see almost a cartoon image of a dog with a backpack <laughs> and he'd be your dog anyway Joe yeah. if, if, if the poem comes he'll be your dog <laughs> yeah I, I often tell this we had a, a goat came into our school after well during school actually and um, then our teacher made us learn on Gorsa Skull about the goat coming into the school oh but we ended up adopting that goat after it anyway. Scalacci we called her because it was around the time of Italian 90 and Scalacci oh, was a famous Italian that put Ireland out at the World Cup so uh, oh, <laughs> we called her Scalacci a lovely name for a goat. Lovely name for a goat. So, um, so Bernadette, you always bring a poet with you every month. Who have you brought this month? Yeah, I brought Sylvia Platt. Sylvia Platt. Platt. Very good. And just, uh, I suppose, a, a health warning. Um, Sylvia took her own life at the age of 30. So um, we will be talking about that. So if you are uh, affected by our conversation, you can phone the Samaritans on 116123. That's 116123. So, Bernadette, tell us, tell us about Sylvia Platt. Okay. Um, I think we always try to build in a little picture of her family, you know, the, the poet's family, kind of a bit of the background. So Sylvia was American. She was born in Boston in 1932. And just to give a little uh, image of her father and mother, her father was a German immigrant and I think he came to America when he was about 16 or so. 
and he was a professor at Boston University and this is where he met Sylvia's mother and she was a student of his 25 years younger than he but she was I think second generation Austrian but anyway they, they were married and um, Sylvia had one younger sibling a brother called Warren now Sylvia's father died when she was only I don't know 8 or 10 that age she was very young and you know there are some some that claim that her bouts of depression which she was plagued with all her life were caused by losing her father at such a young age but I'm not so sure about that I'm not so sure that that caused it mm-hmm. now, I'm not saying it wouldn't affect her or affect any child but I don't think it caused her mental illness because that was something that plagued her God love her but in terms of, you know, a person, she was a highly intelligent lady and she was writing, she was in the writing scene from a very young age. And while she was still in her early teens, you know, she entered and won many literary contests. So she was well into it. Um, <clears throat> she attended a college called Smith College and that was on a scholarship. And during, that was, I think, in around 1951, Joe. So during her years at, at this college, now she did achieve great artistic and academic success. But also during that time, she suffered from severe depression and she did attempt, um, she had an attempted suicide on her life and she did undergo periods of, you know, psychiatric hospitalization and that. And yet, you know, you have to kind of admire because despite all these health issues ongoing, she graduated from Spit with high, high honors in English and that was in 1955. So after that, she went on to study at Newham College in Cambridge in the UK on a Fulbright Fellowship Scholarship. And then this is where she met her husband, Ted Hughes, who's also well-known in poetry circles. And I'd say they had, I'd say we'd call it a whirlwind romance because they got married four months after meeting. So I don't think I could put any other name on a whirlwind on that. And they did go to America for a period and lived there, but then they did return to the UK. And um, Sylvia and Ted had two children. But in 1962, I'd say they were only married about six years, um, it became known that Hughes had an affair and they separated after that. But there's a lot in, in Sylvia Platt's poetry, like she wrote what I would call the confessional type of poetry, maybe externalising what the turmoil that was going on inside herself. And I think, I suppose that was her illness, that there was a constant sense of, I don't know, isolation within herself and, and all of that. But you know, some of her images are very stark. And again, I think that reflects what was in her own head. There's a poem there that I might read, and it's called Waking in Winter. Yeah. I can taste the tin of the sky, the real tin thing. Winter dawn is the color of metal. The trees stiffen into place like burnt nerves. All night I have dreamed of destruction, annihilations, an assembly line of cutthroats, and you and I inching off in the grey Chevrolet, drinking the green poison of still lawns, the little clapboard gravestones, noiseless on rubber wheels on the way to the sea resort. How the balconies echoed, how the sun lit up the skulls, the unbuckled bones facing the view. Space, space. The bed linen was giving out entirely. Cot legs melted in terrible attitudes, and the nurses, each nurse patched her soul to a wound and disappeared. The deathly guests had not been satisfied with the rooms or the smiles or the beautiful rubber plants or the sea, hushing their peel scents like old Mother Morphia. Now, I think in this she's describing some of her times in hospital, mm. where she would have been in hospital due to her illness. And I think the end there where she refers to old Mother Morphia, I think that would have been medication yeah. that would give some ease or, you know, all that. But I think she deals with it very... Um, 
you know, she didn't put any veneer on things, and that's my opinion now. And I might be, you know, people might say they wouldn't agree, and that's fine. But she dealt with what she was experiencing. And there was another poem there that I thought I might read, and it's called Mirror. And it's a short one as well. I am silver and exact. I have no preconceptions. Whatever I see, I swallow immediately, just as it is, unmisted by love or dislike. I am not cruel, only truthful, the eye of a little god, four-cornered. Most of the time I meditate on the opposite wall. It is pink with speckles. I have looked at it so long, I think it is part of my heart. But it flickers. Faces and darkness separate us over and over. Now I am a lake. A woman bends over me, searching my reaches for what she really is. Then she turns to those liars, the candles or the moon. I see her back and reflect it faithfully. She rewards me with tears and an agitation of hands. I am important to her. She comes and goes. Each morning it is her face that replaces the darkness. In me she has drowned a young girl. And in me an old woman rises toward her day after day like a terrible fish. So I think she's looking into the mirror, kind of searching for herself. And I mean, the mirror can only reflect what she sees, what, the, what it sees. But she is, look, we all know about the passing of time and its effect on humans. Mm. But I think, again, evidenced by her, her, she honed in and dwelt on things, you know, permanently. And this was something she could see in herself, like getting old. And I mean, considering that she she died when she was only 30, but she, she it's as if she was looking ahead and seeing, well, I'm not going to stay like this. I'm getting older and older and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And you know, that poem reminds me of, and you might have come across this in school, Joe, Mirror in February by Thomas Kensler, mm. where he's dealing with the same topic in a way. And he's looking out at the shrubs that are kind of pruned back, you know, hacked clean for better bearing, I think is the way he put it. But in the end, he accepts that he's not young, he's not renewable, just man. Mm. But, you know, he has kind of, he has written on the same topic, but with a step back, if you know what I'm trying to yeah. say. And do we know what kind of a personality she was? Because it sounds like from the start there, she's kind of saying she's a straight talker and uh, take me as yeah. I am kind of a character. Is that the way she was yeah. or was she a recluse? Or what way was she, was she that I way? I don't think she, no, I don't think she was a recluse. I think even in college, you're like, she was sociable. Mm. But I think she was a tormented soul, which I think she was always, there was a torment inside of her. That's how I would describe her personality, very tormented and wouldn't, you know, we all experience things, but I think whatever she experienced, the negativity in it, and I think she 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 couldn't rid herself of that in a sense, do you yeah. know? I, I can't get over how young she is because she she's captured, like, in popular culture and everything else. Like, Sylvia Plath yes. has been referenced so many times as, you know, yes. a poet of note of, of the the 20th century. And, exactly. like, you know, and, and, and being an influence to many uh, poets going forward and many artists as well. Yeah, and I think... I think it was, you know, after her death and her, you know, mm. it was tragic. But I think her poetry took on a new life and that can happen sometimes, you know, that I think that she, her poetry suddenly became and it was praised more and a lot of her, she kept diaries all her life and a lot of them were published and letters to various people. And there was a film made about her life. I think it was called Sylvia and I think uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, she, she starred in that. But so I think that her life became, it's amazing, you know, posthumously, she actually was the first poet to win the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. 
So that was in 1982. So if you think like that, it's amazing how that can happen, that she became larger than life after life, if you know what I'm trying to say, mm. that kind of a kind of a way. But And it is, it is in a way, it's good that she's not remembered as just someone or dismissed as someone who took her own life because that was that was her illness. But she was a poet and her poetry is remembered. And you're right when you say that it's, it's relevant and, and still kind of kept today as relevant as... And she wrote, um, she wrote some plays and they were all published, but again, after her death... There was, and I think she became more popular and it's, it's kind of a strange thing in a way because all the poetry that, that suddenly became kind of um, you know popular was all written while she was alive but um, so yeah you're, you're dead right like she still is relevant and as, as she's definitely on the, the world stage of poets and was there people writing like her at that time writing the way she wrote was she different was than that way that confessional type poetry you mean I think there was um it was a Nan Sexton who was an American poet, and mm-hmm. um, I think uh, Robert Lowell, um, and I think they they were advocates of the confessional type of poetry. And she would have kind of she would have known them in America, and she would have you know bought into. Now there was something that I learned that she was um, she became an editor of a magazine when she was you know I think during the summer break from college, which is a great honor. And then she was in New York doing that and she didn't really like the New York scene. But also then she tried to enroll in a, a writing course in Harvard and she was rejected and she was devastated after that. You know, I think everything affected her deeply, more so than another person might, would be affected and then they'd move on. And I don't think she was able to do that. But I think as well as that, like her her separation from Ted Hughes, you know, and knowing that, look, anyone would be hurt when they're betrayed by a partner. I mean, that stands to reason. But I think it destroyed her in a way that it, she went deeper into her own mental anguish and, and all of that kind of stuff. Because, And again, that I think is because of her illness that she, you know, and I'm not trying to make light of that or anything because everyone would be hurt. But I think, you know, the three years before she died, if I can put it that way, from so 1963, she wrote, and I did, they didn't separate until 1962, and I know that Ted Hughes wrote in an account that she was writing feverishly, you know, like, it's like as if there was some urgency or almost panic, and that she was producing poems and poems and poems and poems. But she was kind of, it had an awful effect on her already mental, you know, fragile state, and she became addicted to sleeping pills, and she was getting up at dawn, and her children were very young, and they were staying with her, and they were asleep and she was writing and writing and writing but um, I think it was like if someone writing with a speed something that she needed to get out or something I, mm. I can't quite put my finger on that but it was like before even they separated so that there was something but I suppose Joe, if you think about it like she came to England she came to the UK and that was in the early 50s and it's not like now where we kind of know about all the cultures because of social media and travel is more frequent but she came to a new country as well and probably was trying to, to adjust to that. And this is someone with a mental illness. And so what support she got then is kind of another story. He was trying to establish himself as a poet. Mm. So maybe he 
was incapable of giving her the support that she needed. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. he was trying to make it into the yeah, and, 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 as well. And he was, or she was responsible for kind of the start of his poetry career in a way, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And so. I can imagine when they separated as well, like if he's in those circles as well, it's hard to get away from him in another way, you know? When yeah, yeah, very, when very much so because they were both in the same scene, if mm, I can put it that yes, way. Yes, exactly. And, like that she was crushed and devastated, you know? Mm. We're talking about the Boston-born... Uh, poet Sylvia Platt with Bernadette Nereida in our Speaky of Poetry. We're going to take a break. We'll have more after these. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you by Virgin Media, Ireland's best broadband. Visit virginmedia.ie. It's playtime. You're listening to The Saturday Supplement with Joe McGill on Radio Kerry. Now we're speaking of poetry with Bernadette Nereida and we're speaking about the Boston-born poet Sylvia uh, Platt. Um, so, Bernadette, where are we going from here with Sylvia Platt? Oh, what I was going to do is, I was going to kind of open up this is with um, another poem of hers. Because mm. she has written, she wrote hundreds and hundreds of poems. Now, she also wrote um, a couple of radio plays and she wrote children's stories. And she wrote diaries feverishly all her life. And there was a novel, the one novel she wrote was called The Bell Jar. And I know I have some inkling that many, many moons ago I read it. And funny enough, the, it was kind of an autobiographical novel because it was about a young girl who suffered all these mental illnesses, but the young girl recovered and all of that. But um, So this one is called Kindness. Kindness slides about my house. Dame Kindness, she is so nice. The blue and red jewels of her rings smoke in the windows. The mirrors are filling with smiles. What is so real as the cry of a child? A rabbit's cry may be wilder but it has no soul. Sugar can cure everything. So kindness says. Sugar is a necessary fluid. Its crystals a little poultice. Oh, kindness, kindness, sweetly picking up pieces. My Japanese silks, desperate butterflies may be pinned any minute, anesthetized. And here you come with a cup of tea, wreathed in steam. The blood jet is poetry. There is no stopping it. You hand me two children, two roses. And I think in this poem, she's kind of acknowledging that all humans need kindness. And she's acknowledging that, that there's no doubt but that she loves her children. I suppose the sugar could be the medication that she must have been on medication. But I think that she's saying, you know, um, the blood jet is poetry. I think she means that poetry is almost like, now I know it didn't save her, but it was the only thing that she could connect with and keep doing. And it was something that she felt, you know, she could let out her... I suppose her her inner pain and her conflicts and her desperation because there was definitely despair in her thoughts as well. But um, so I think that it's it's a short poem, but it says a lot. I think anyway. Mm, yeah. But definitely. as as we were saying there before the break, that it's amazing. All right, that it was after her death, an awful lot of her stuff became kind of suddenly kind of rose to the surface, and lots of her diaries and that were published and letters that she had written. Now Ted Hughes. I don't know if they divorced, but I know they separate. They were apart and they weren't living together. But he was the executor of her estate, so he published some of her letters. But he did. There was a huge outcry because he admitted that he destroyed the diaries she kept in the couple of years preceding her death. Now, he was the executor. He did that, but as to why, one can only you yeah. know. There's several yeah. speculative uh-huh. submissions about why and all the rest of it. Um, but you know, it's it's what he did, and there's you can't take back what was destroyed. But um, there was so much published after her death, and the, in a way, it's fascinating 
because she was alive they were all written but it's suddenly as if she became more important after death I don't know if that that can make any sense or anything, but um, yeah. And uh, I was saying, I was saying to you off air, it happens a lot with art, doesn't it? You know, so in, it in does. the art world, yeah, it that does. something becomes that someone more that might have been doing something and suddenly, like, and they're no longer here, and suddenly, oh, everything they've done is kind of maybe people see it in a different light or something. Yeah, but it, it sees and something finds something in it, and you know, it, it depends on the time of it as well. I suppose yeah. where where yeah. we are in the world and all that. But it, it yeah. is just amazing literature in general, and uh, yeah. You know, songwriting and all that, that it lives on long after we're all gone and it still yes. it still resonates with someone else because those they're universal themes maybe of battling with yeah. demons and love yeah. and loss and all that. Yeah, and I think that's true and definitely songs and there's there's a huge kind of example that like the the anything written or any kind of art, it lives on. It lives on forever. But there is a poem and actually it's so tragic that she died at such a young age and in such a tragic way. And she, her two children, I know her daughter became a writer and an artist, but her son, I think his name was Nicholas, and I think he was a marine biologist, he took his own life at the age of 30, hmm. which is, it's, it's, it's just very tragic and very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. But she had written, you know, a lot of her poems, you know, they could start off, like, you know, we'll say a poem, and you, you it's only when you move through it that you see that she ends up, the gloom and the despair comes out. And there's a poem called Balloons, and I know that um, she wrote this just a few days before she died. And I might read this one. Um, balloons. Since Christmas they have lived with us, guileless and clear, oval soul animals, taking up half the space, moving and rubbing on the silk invisible air drifts, giving a shriek and pop when attacked, then scooting to rest, barely trembling. Yellow cathead, blue fish, such queer moons we live with instead of dead furniture. Straw mats, white walls, and these traveling globes of thin air, red, green, delighting the heart like wishes or free peacock's blessing. Old ground with a feather beaten in starry metals. Your small brother is making his balloon squeak like a cat, seeming to see a funny pink world he might eat on the other side of it. He bites, then sits back, fat jug, contemplating a world clear as water, a red shred in his fist. So I suppose all of us, and she does this at the start of the poem, associate balloons with celebrations and, you know, all the different colours and the hoopla and all of that. But even in that poem, and I think it's a lovely poem, she ends that the the balloon has burst because Mm. the little fella has bit it or something. But I think she's also saying that nothing is permanent, you know, that everything ends up in shreds. And again, this is coming from within herself, that like glory and fun and all this moving around and these capsules of air, and yet they end up, you know, in shreds, in bits. Yeah. And um, that, I think, is, is that I think a lot of her poems, like, again, bring out what her thoughts. And I mean, no one could argue with it, like a balloon isn't going to stay blown up. But I think she's gone deeper than balloons when she comes to the end and say, you know, he sits, you know, and shredding his little fist. So, yeah. and it's... Yeah, it's so, so well described, uh, Bernadette. We're out of time, Bernadette. Um, uh, it's amazing, um, I suppose, the legacy that Sylvia Platt has left, like we said, only 30 years of age. Very sad to yeah. hear her, her son as well. Um, yeah. But a fascinating... 
um, a body of work she's left behind us Definitely. behind her as well which has been absolutely um, uh, fantastic um, again yes. if you if you are affected by our conversation here this morning you can call 116123 that's the Samaritans call 116123 Bernadette that's all we have time for thanks a million for coming on uh, this morning and uh, bringing us another titan of poetry righty thank you too Joe thank you Sloan that's it for this morning. My thanks to everyone who contributed. My thanks to Abigail Bernard, who was on sound. Francis Jones is on the way, so keep it here on Radio Kerry. I'll be back again Saturday fortnight. Frank Lewis is on next Saturday morning, so stay tuned for that. Until then, look after yourself and take care.